Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Oren Davis about creativity in the workplace, including fostering a culture that allows for creativity, managing for creativity, building creative teams, the role of diversity and creativity, and the connection between empathy and creativity. Davis, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you back, my friend. Um, this is the third time you've been on the podcast, isn't it? Yeah, lots of fun. So I love to keep coming back. Why not? Yeah, you know, it, we've had some really great conversations, and I would encourage listeners uh, to go back and check out the back catalog, um, see some of the previous conversations that Oren and I have had together. Uh, today, we're going to really, I suppose, build on and continue along the same vein as some of our previous conversations, this time focusing more specifically on creativity in the workplace, um, including the elements of fostering a culture that allows for creativity, managing that creativity, building creative teams, the role of diversity in creativity, um, and the connection between empathy and creativity. I think all of those are really important interrelated components, and we'll have a chance to explore those uh, together today. As we get started, I just wanted to share Oren's bio with everybody, um, and, and for anyone who hasn't caught maybe our previous conversations, Oren Davis uh, earned his doctorate in positive psychology and is a self-actualization engineer who enables people to do and be their best. He consults for companies from startups to multinationals on hiring strategies, culture, innovation, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and employee well-being, and coaches people at all levels on building self-knowledge and developing personal growth trajectories. As the principal investigator of the Quality of Life Laboratory, he conducts research on flow, creativity, hypnosis, and mentoring. Dr. Davis also serves as a professor of creativity, entrepreneurship, business, and psychology, and gives workshops and lectures globally about human capital, creativity, and innovation, uh, and positive psychology. He is a startup advisor who helps early stage companies enhance their value propositions, pitches, culture, and human capital, and writes and speaks avidly about human capital, creativity, and innovation, and positive psychology. Uh, again, great to have you back, Oren. Uh, anything else you would like to share with listeners by way of background, personal context, anything like that? I think you covered it all. I mean, those who want to check out my website, www.qlab.org, uh, generally gives you an idea of what we're working on these days. And otherwise, uh, also check out my blog uh, on Medium, and uh, you can find me on Twitter in both cases at Davis. Excellent. Excellent. Um, so let's really just dive on in. Um, 
creativity. First, what does it mean to be creative? Uh, I, I think, you know, a lot of times people have in their mind these, these notions of what creativity is, what it isn't, and people tend to label themselves pretty early on in life as whether, you know, as either a creative or not creative person. So what, what do you mean by the term creativity? Um, what does that look like? So the funny thing is, uh, we creativity researchers actually do a lot of debating about the nature of creativity, how we know whether something is creative. Um, I like uh, Teresa Mabile's definition of thinking of creativity as the novel and the useful. So we think of uh, creativity as a combination of, let's say, divergent thinking and then convergent thinking. So we diverge out, we, we develop the novel, but then we have to converge and make the useful. And uh, this, is, this goes along with the, you know, some of the work on the creative problem solving method that you see out of the folks at Buffalo State, um, uh, folks at IDEO and other places sort of sausage that and called it design thinking, but really the, the origin of this is creative problem solving. And the idea is that in the process of creative problem solving, we diverge into the novel and then we converge into the useful. And of course, you know, it's a, it's a very circular process. So you really can start or end or go anywhere on this. There's, there's a lot of flexibility with that. But ultimately, you want something that people can actually use and that is going to have enough novelty that's going to be something different. And usefulness and utility, that is something we debate a lot as to like, what constitutes useful? But it's got to be useful to some people. And generally, you want to think of it as something that is useful to a broad audience, not useful to just, you know, a couple people. Yeah, I like I like those aspects of your definition. Um, and I, I'm trying to remember, uh, I can't remember the name of the, of the individual on, on the TED Talk. Um, uh, he talks about creativity and education. And uh, Robinson may rest in peace. Yes, yes, absolutely. He came as a guest speaker to my university a couple years back. Uh, and, and, you know, he shared a lot of the same types of ideas he shared in TED Talks and other speeches. Um, but it was, it was really powerful within an educational context to, to be thinking about creativity um, the way he was conveying it. And one of the things that struck me in the way he approached it was just this idea that, you know, we're born creative creatures. Uh, we're born cr creators and innovators. And you know, much of society and the way education is set up is it kind of beats that out of us. Uh, and so we have to find ways to kind of reconnect with our creative side. And, and also he, he framed it in terms of uh, how creativity isn't necessarily being that, that, uh, that musician or that artist, um, you know, these kind of classical forms of creativity that we often, you know, first think of. Um, but the utility piece, like you just mentioned, is such a huge piece. The, the, uh, the finding connections and the ability to, to synergize um, and, and uh, synthesize information, um, that also brings forth a different form of creativity. Uh, and, you know, th those types of conversations really help me to reframe my own thinking about me as a creative uh, individual. Uh, I don't think of myself necessarily as a classically creative person. Um, but when I think about those elements, you know, I realize, yeah, there actually are quite a few things that I do that are, are probably considered quite creative. And I think it's important for all of us to be able to break down those barriers of understanding and those labels um, so that we don't box ourselves in 
and perhaps limit our abilities and, and capacities to, to really make a difference in the world. Absolutely. Although, you know, I, I have to ask, like, what do you mean by classically creative? Like when you say you're not classically creative and I hear people tell me, you know, all the time they're not creative people. Uh, what do you mean by that? I, I think, I, I guess I mean the stereotypical creativity, you know, uh, people who, who are artists, who um, make, who are musicians, uh, poets, you know, that kind of stuff. I, I think that's what first comes to my mind when I think about creativity. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm, much more of an analytical type of person. Um, and so I just, you know, I don't necessarily always think of that first and foremost as um, a creative element, but it certainly can be, right? Well, does that mean Einstein wasn't creative because Einstein wasn't an artist? Well, I mean, that's a, that's an absolutely great point. And it's, it's a silly notion, right? Um, it's, and it's, 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 it's far too constricting of a definition to say that, you know, you have to be an artist or a poet or something like that. Um, but but I think where it comes from is actually, you know, to, to your point about what Sir Ken Robinson was saying, one of the reasons why we only think of artists as creative is because in school, one of the only courses where we're actually encouraged to be creative is art class. If we take art, if we take music, how many of you, you know, were encouraged, how many people are encouraged to be creative in chemistry class? I mean, especially when you realize that if you're the wrong kind of creative in chemistry class, things go boom. Uh, and I have made things go boom in chemistry lab, so that, that is not good. That, that actually, I, I was not being so creative. I just heated something too quickly and it went boom. <laughs> but um, this is why you wear your safety equipment, let me tell you. Yeah. Uh, but, but anyway, like, we're, are, are we encouraged to be creative in math class? Are we encouraged to be creative in our history classes? Generally not. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, and, and so I think that's, that's what he talks about in terms of the, that creativity being beat out of you, right? Um, that you just start to get labeled early in life. Uh, for me, I remember from my earliest days, like first, second grade, I remember pe people telling me, you're really good at math you should do something related to math or become an architect or something like that. Those were the messages I heard over and over and over and over again, even though I do like music, I do like art. Um, I just don't necessarily think of myself as a, as a particularly talented artistic person. Um, and as time went on, you know, I, I did end up doing stuff that's heavily quantitative. I do a lot of research. I do a lot of um, statistics. Um, but, but I, I, you know, like you, I, I, I'm an interdisciplinary kind of guy, um, social sciences, business, and, and there is a lot of um, uh, connectivity uh, between all the different elements of my life, and that has borne out creativity and innovation. Uh, and it's, I think about it, and it's a pity, you know, how I was labeled so early in my life and how I, how I, I lived so much of my life thinking of myself as not a creative person. I guess that's that's one of the core messages I think is really important for us to to get across. Um, because if you're not thinking of yourself as a creative person, chances are you're not doing some of those things that anyone can do to foster greater levels of creativity. So there's a trade-off that we run into, I think, and that and, and that is part of what underlies the problem. So if we want to be understood in society, which we do, right? We want to be able to share ourselves with society. We want to be understood by society. And society needs a neat packaged way to handle us. And so 
they want us to create one identity and there's a certain amount of pressure to create a single identity a single self and in many cases especially building on you know the industrial era it was through your job and and we spent most of our time at work in life so we often define ourselves through our work but we are more than that and many of us we do sort of build much more complex personalities and we want to build complex personalities the challenge is sharing that complexity with the world so for instance um people think that i do so many different kinds of consulting because i work in dei uh, i work in hiring practices i work in employee engagement and as i mentioned on the show before they're all the same problem people don't realize this it's all one problem. You will never find a company that's got only one of those problems. One of those problems may be prominent, but it's not the only one. And so the funny thing is, I'm actually, what I'm doing is not so complex. I mean, it's complex in the execution, but I'm not wearing nearly as many hats as people think that I am, in part because it's hard. People just want to see things as a unitary thing. They want to they wanna see just one problem. They want to see DEI as one problem, employee engagement is one problem, hiring practices as one problem. They want to see somebody as a banker, engineer, musician, um, equestrian. It doesn't really, like, they, they want to be able to create these pigeonholes and boxes because it keeps it easier to organize. I'm excited to announce the publication of my new book from HCI Press, The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership, Ordinary Everyday Actions That Produce Extraordinary Results. Consider how the nature of work has shifted over the past 50 years. With increased globalization, rapid technological advancement, and the shift in economic composition, the average job of today looks very different than the average job of 50 years ago. What will the jobs and organizations of tomorrow look like? Moreover, what does this all mean for organizational leaders? What are the core competencies and capabilities of organizations and their leadership that are prepared for continued disruption and geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts? Regardless of what the future holds, increasingly, leaders need to be socially minded, data-driven, decisive, champions of talent, and disruptors of the traditional notions of leadership, teams, organizations, and work. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. I'm excited to share my insights with you. So people want to call me just a DEI consultant, or they want to just call me a hiring specialist. But to look at what I really am, that, that's complicated. That takes a few minutes to talk about. Who wants to take that time to go talk to me about the, the details and the nuance, uh, especially when people want a solution right now? We're, we're thinking very short term. We want instant gratification. I want to be able to label you like that which incidentally is also what's underlying some of the crazy identity politics that we're seeing now, that, that I'm, I am my ethnicity, or I am my gender, or I am my sex, or I am you know, my geographic location, or I am my socioeconomic status. And so, so to say that I'm, I'm not those things, 
but they're not the whole of my identity. And even, you know, within those things, we're not a monolith. Yeah, we're far more complex than that. Uh, and that comes back to our creative profile as well. Uh, I absolutely agree. So as leaders, I think one of the things that we need to try to do is help break down those mental barriers and roadblocks uh, around how people conceive of creativity and innovation, because we all want innovative organizations. We all want innovative cultures. So we need to help our people to recognize and think of themselves as creative beings, as innovative beings. And then there are all sorts of things that you can do just in terms of daily practice, uh, the types of behaviors and activities you can engage in on a consistent basis that will help to enhance and promote greater levels of creativity uh, and innovation. Um, so let's talk a little bit more. Wait, about I'm, I'm actually going to push back on that. Many companies do not want creativity and innovation. They do not. They would like to give lip service to that idea, but they don't. Well, that's, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, companies, you're absolutely right. Companies say they want creativity and innovation. The market demands creativity and innovation, but organizations are set up to maintain the status quo. That's like the function of bureaucracy, right? And so a lot of times when people are creative, when they do push the envelope, um, then a lot of times they get sanctioned for that. They get pushed back, they get, they, they get um, hurt in their career in some way. And so I guess I, I'm taking as an assumption, which is probably not a, a, a good assumption, but I'm taking as an assumption for a starting point of this conversation that we have leaders or you are, you know, listeners, you are a leader who, who truly values creativity and innovation, not just to give lip service to it, but like you're actually trying to promote that within your organization. And if that's the case, then where do we go from there? How do, what are some of the ways we can start to really create that dynamic kind of a culture uh, within our organization? Well, back up for a second there. There are plenty of leaders that want it, but they're disincentivized to do it because often they're dealing with a lot of stakeholders, boards, shareholders that all want short-term returns. Well, short-term returns require consistency. Also, being creative requires risk. More importantly, being creative requires failure. Nobody, nobody puts out good creative work without failure. And most companies you know, I mean, I mean, just imagine this, that I tell you that if you want your company to be innovative and creative, you're going to have to invest at least $5 million in extensive projects, at least four of which are going to fail, one of which will be successful. How many companies are going to be willing to do that? Now I'm going to, now I'm going to make that a little bit more realistic. I want you to invest $1 million in 20 different projects. Each project gets a million dollars. 19 of those projects are going to be colossal failures and they're going to look bad and they're going to be demoralizing. One of those is probably going to be a decent success, not a spectacular one, a decent one. Now I'm going to upgrade this a little bit more. I'm going to say you need to invest in 50 projects, each of which costs $1 million. Um, most of them, at least 40 of them are going to be colossal failures. You are going to lose $40 million on those projects. Of the remaining 10, Maybe five of them will not be failures. They're not going to be so hot. They're not really going to be failures. Of the remaining five that are, you know, not failures and are not great, you know, and are not not great, probably about four of them will be okay. You might get back some ROI. Your $1 million may become a few more million dollars, but it's not really going to happen. And one of those is going to be 
spectacular. Now you realize it's going to cost you $50 million, not, not $5 million, but $50 million to get something spectacular. You're going to have to invest in 50 projects. Everybody's like, well, we should do some prototyping, all that stuff, but you really don't know where it's going to go. And nobody wants to invest in failures. And because of that, especially, you know, you don't know what's going to succeed. And mostly what we, when, when we want, we want guarantees when we do this. And so what we invest in is incremental innovation, but incremental innovation doesn't take us that far. And it's not actually worth that much money. It is over time, I suppose, but the amount that we invest to make an incremental innovation is not going to be worth much, you know, in the grand scheme. And so what you're really looking for, everybody wants this breakthrough innovation. Let me tell you, breakthrough innovation probably requires 40 failures, five so-so results, four decent results, and one good one. And that's if you're lucky. If you're not, it's going to be about 90 failures and so on. And yeah, really, yeah. you're going to maybe, maybe one in 100. And that's, that's going to be normal. And when you think about this as, you know, 1% success rate and breakthrough innovation, people keep talking about ways to get through this. You're going to have to go through a lot of failures and nobody wants to. Yeah. So I guess for me, then it comes back to reframing the problem. Uh, and if we're looking at these as failures, that's part of the, that's a huge part of the problem, right? From the get go. Oh, yeah. um, right. Because if it's a failure, then, then we're risk averse. We don't want to waste money, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it's not failure. You're, you're learning, uh, as you're going through these incremental, um, processes of, of failing fast, falling forward, figuring out what works, what doesn't work. Um, and yes, maybe 99% of what you do isn't going to be some huge success, but if you reframe the process as a learning environment, um, where it, you know, what you learn now may not even lead to the success of this particular one in 100 initiative, but it can lead, those learnings can lead to successes and innovations and creativity in other areas that you haven't even thought of yet um, that can drive new um, pathways for the organization, right? And so, you know, it's just so important that we get out of this, these restricted mindsets, um, in terms of what creativity is, what innovation is, what success is, um, and what failure is. Because if, if we're defining um, all of these, these uh, outcomes that don't lead to some grand, transformative, uh, disruptive, su innovative success, if we're defining all of those as failures, then of course an organization's not going to end up doing that. Um, so, I, so I suppose what the question then is, well, what do we do to help change that narrative? And how, how do we help board members to see that? How do we help other organizational leaders to understand that so we can invest in the innovation like we need to? Ironically, you're right on the money, and uh, that is multi-entendre intended. Um, and the, the problem is short-term versus long-term thinking. You've got too many people who are incentivized to think short-term. And that's the, that's the part of the narrative that has to change. You've got to think long-term. And when I say long-term, I don't mean six months and I don't mean one year. I mean two, five, 10, 20 if you can do it, but I doubt anybody can really do 20, even 10 is a stretch. But two to five years down the line is where you've got to be thinking about this. Not two months, three months, six months. And when people are looking at quarterly earnings reports, 
and saying like, oh, we invested in this and we want to see a return on it in the next quarter. Not a chance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you get lucky sometimes, but like I wouldn't count on that. And the thing is, everybody knows not to count on that. And so when your position as CEO or as, as a leader of a division depends upon the success in your quarterly earnings reports, you like if, if that's what you're worried about, you don't have a creative company, you won't have a creative company, and you're never going to give up. You gotta start if you can't start thinking long term, if you can't change the narrative on the incentives, on the expectations, to think long term, to say, you know what, we may take some losses as we're investing in updates. And by the way, you know, this is something that Amazon did. You're like, you want to know how Amazon got to be so spectacularly successful. Go look back at some of their early reports. They were not making money for a really long time. And then all of a sudden they were, and then they were making more and then more and then more. And like, whole point is that they had- a Now, very, now they very own the world. <laughs> well, I think they're still, uh, you know, all the, all the fan companies I think are, are locked in a rather large multi-scale war to rule the world. But uh, our corporate overlords, we have not decided which of our corporate overlords overlords will emerge as the reigning monarch of of the universe. Yeah, so yeah. But, but that's how you change the narrative: is you've got to start thinking long term. You've got to start accepting failure as not as failure, but as a stepping stone towards success. And you've got to start thinking of those in, those um, investments as not gambles, but as clear investments and not in incremental innovation. You've got to eschew the incremental innovation and start going for some moonshots and give people time to explore their passions with that. And that's one of the things like, you know, when 3M, it's not Google that came up with this, it was 3M as far as I can tell, um, unless it was somebody before 3M. But this, this idea of a percentage of your work time being allowed to explore your passions, that's something that every company should be doing if they want to start in, um, innovating. Let people work on what they're passionate about. And you never know where it's going to go. I mean, people should look up the story of Post-it notes. Um, or yep. even more interesting, and to me, this is the most interesting one, the story of green fluorescent protein, which, by the way, led to so many innovations in the field of biology. What's funny is, how did we come up with it? Some geek was interested in why jellyfish glow in the dark. Wasn't thinking about the rest of it. Just wanted to know why jellyfish glow in the dark. Figured out why jellyfish glow in the dark, and then somebody figured out that you could take that protein and attach it to a whole bunch of other things, and all of a sudden you could track how uh, human body processes will suddenly start to glow in the dark. You can start basically using this as the cellular equivalent of a highlighter and bang. Suddenly you can track all sorts of things you never thought about tracking before. And that has led to amazing innovations. All because somebody was interested in jellyfish. Yeah, yeah. You're, and so, so getting out of the short-term thinking trap, which that, mm-hmm. that is so difficult, particularly in our um, U.S. Um, society and culture, like we're just such short-term oriented people, uh, generally speaking. Uh, so we need to get out of that trap. Um, well, Oren, we're at the top of the hour. I know you have a hard stop and you need to get going to your next thing. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Just really quick before we close, um, if you could just remind listeners how they can get connected with you uh, again, and then we'll, uh, we'll uh, sign off. Sure, absolutely. Uh, folks can uh, check out my website, www.qllab.org, qllab.org. 
And you can find me on both Twitter and Medium as D-R-O-R-I-N-D-A-V-I-S, D-R Orin Davis. Uh, do tweet occasionally, post uh, blog posts uh, on occasion, mostly about uh, processes and hiring processes, diversity, uh, sometimes creativity, and uh, sometimes some potpourri on positive psychology. Excellent. Well, I encourage uh, listeners to reach out, get connected with Oren. Oren, as always, it's a pleasure talking with you. These are always fun conversations. And I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week. We are excited about the launch of HCI's new magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free interactive e-magazine designed to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We will be publishing issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Check out the first issue and let us know what you think. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week. Check out our new weekly LinkedIn newsletter, Alchemizing Human Capital, exploring industry trends via original research and interviews with executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We look forward to having you join us.